0: Daniel J. Levitin, Ph.D., is the Dean of Social Sciences at the Minerva Schools at KGI in San Francisco and a faculty member and Center for Executive Education at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He's the author of This Is Your Brain on Music, The World in Six Songs, and The Organized Mind. His new book is A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a book that deals in the world of what you call often and early lying weasels. <laughs> I thought that was a great phrase. Explain your decision to use that rather loaded phrase in this book.
1: Well, I was, I was after a kind of homespun quality to the book. I, I wanted the book to not be intimidating or off-putting. I do talk about some very serious ideas, but I wanted people to have fun making their way through it because and I figured, you know, language is one of the ways in which I can help people to have fun
0: with the book. I language is important to this book and it's one of the key things that I realized. I was halfway through the book and I read all the parts about the statistics and graphs and charts and I just got to the part about how we use words to deceive one another and you uh made a telling statement that humans are a storytelling species. And, and I think this is absolutely true. I actually own narrativespecies dot com. So <laughs> that gives an idea of where I'm coming from. And what I realized was that the power of a graph or a chart or a statistic is that it looks like an objective fact, like this mic stand or your phone, something that really exists we can't debate. But what it really is, is, in fact, a story, and it uses the factness of itself to short, to cover and short-circuit the fact that we experience a whole story when we look at these things.
1: That's a wonderful, uh, very descriptive way, eloquent way to put it. Statistics have the patina of fact and uh, irrefutability, as, as, do, as do the numbers that make them up, but statistics are gathered by people. Uh oh! I wouldn't it's say that's sta- a problem. <laughs> right, I, Houston. I think we have a problem. Uh-huh. Uh, I I don't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that um, statistics are people too, hmm. but you know they're gathered by people. Some of them, some of those people are well intentioned but misinformed or undereducated. Some of them are su- supremely well educated and manipulative. Uh, and you know. I think there's sort of an arms race going on between the public and the purveyors of of pseudoscience and half-truths, and we need to keep
0: up. Uh, this book is an excellent means of doing so. I think it's really nice. It's really laid out like a field guide. It's like you could take it out into the field and look at the difference. Oh, uh, right here I have this kind of statistic or this is this kind of graph, and it doesn't add up. Uh, but... You know, my
1: original idea for the cover of the book, although I didn't hold sway over the publisher with this, was it would be a cartoon, you know, cartoon. In order, as you know, there are cartoons in the book. I wanted uh-huh. to convey this kind of fun. This is fun, you know, when you get into it. The cartoon on the cover would be a guy uh, who looks like a bird watcher. Whatever your preconception is of what a bird watcher <laughs> looks like. And he'd be, look somewhat harried. and he'd be holding a book in his hand and a magnifying glass. And he'd be in a
0: field surrounded by cow pies of different <laughs> sizes and shapes. <laughs> I, I think that makes perfect sense. Let's just jump right into the numbers. Uh, because this is the most common uh, lie we encounter, statistics and damn lies. We all know the quote. Uh, we talk, You talked about... Um, That statistics are gathered by humans. And this is a crucial point in your book. And I think a theme that we really need to think about is how statistics are gathered. Let's talk about averages. Um, There are three kinds of averages. And that's uh, already, we've lumped three things under one label. We're in trouble,
1: aren't we? We are in trouble. Next time you see an average reported, Ask yourself, could the average be obscuring something that I really need to know? <laughs> because face it, you know, averages can be useful, but you know, buyer beware. What you're doing is you're taking a whole bunch of data points and collapsing them into a single number. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I could tell you uh, if you're a salesman or um, you work for an investment firm and you're looking for prospects, I could tell you oh, there's a room over there. There are 20 people in that room and their average net worth is 5 billion dollars each. You're going to want to go in that room, right? Mm-hmm. But the room could be Warren Buffett and 19 homeless people. And I don't know how the, how they all got in the same room together, but right? The average, you know, if you're talking about the mean, would be very high per person. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of obscures the fact that you've got a wide range. <laughs> now, there are other kinds of averages. We talk about the mode. The mode is the value that appears most often. Mm-hmm. You've got 19 people who are homeless. And ju- this isn't true of all homeless, of course. But let's just say for the sake of argument that these particular 19 homeless have no net worth, mm-hmm. uh, $0. The modal value in that room, if you're talking about that kind of mean, is 0 Two very different answers to what
0: is the average: mm-hmm. five billion or zero. <laughs> they're both averages. Now, uh, I think too that um, one of the things about averages that they obscure is that um, you have to look at how they're applied, and, and you can you come up with the ar- with the average that, on average, humans have one testicle. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right uh often what happens with
1: averages is we're taking two very unlike things and averaging them together, like the homeless people and Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are unlike things. You can take an average, but the question is how meaningful is it? So, yes, we could average the number of testicles across all humans, male and female, but not, not a meaningful <laughs> way to look at the problem, perhaps. Um one you know, the... And that's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent a few days. I've been working on this book since 2001.
0: Wow, that's a long time.
1: I spent a few days trying to figure out whether the example should be testicles or ovaries. <laughs> on average, humans have one testicle or on average, humans have one ovary.
0: Well, one would think it's ovaries because in... In theory, there are more of them, aren't there? More women than men on the planet. Slightly
1: know? more women than men, but yes, you could say you could use ovaries as an example. Mm-hmm. There was just some. I think the difference is that ovaries are hidden from our view.
0: Right. And most of us have never seen one.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but most people have seen a testicle or two, and so it was it was making it visual.
0: I, I think this uh, emphasizes one of the aspects of this book. I think that is most powerful is that for a man who acknowledges the power of storytelling and trying to deceive uh, using numbers and words and arguments and all sorts of things. You're a heck of a good storyteller yourself.
1: Well, thank you. But I mean, I don't know that I'm a good storyteller out of the gate, but I do spend a lot of time trying to come up with stories to make points. That's, That's
0: part of the job
1: description of being a university professor, isn't it? Uh, yeah.
0: Now, I, I, I like some of these charts that you've created where we'll have, uh, you know, uh, in particular, the argument charts where you're adding things up. Talk about creating those charts. Did you, um, as a writer and somebody who's presenting information, especially information about misinformation, which is a difficult tre- uh, line to toe, um. Did you design these charts, or were these charts uh, that you found out in the wild, so to speak? Well, so um, I thought—I was a fan of the books by Edward Tufte. Mm-hmm.
1: And oh, yeah.
0: They're amazing.
1: He's yeah. an amazing man. And there are some wonderful books that have very sophisticated graphics in them. Mm-hmm. And so when thinking about the visual design and feel of the book, I wanted to have large type so that uh, people over— Fifty who might not have to put on their reading glasses.
0: Which might include <laughs> your interviewer.
1: <laughs> I wanted the lines to have some air between them. Um, I, and I wanted the graphs to all look different, the way that a field guide has different kinds of pictures in it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the graphs are taken right out of the media. I reproduced something from Fox News.
0: That was a great one. We have to discuss that one. <laughs> no, actually, two from yes, Fox News. you got two from but, Fox.
1: But one of them came straight from Fox News. Uh, another came from The Verge. I mean, some of these graphs really come from the media. But then for the others, um, I wanted to draw them in a very simplistic style Um so that the point wouldn't be obscured by the sophistication of the graphic. So, yeah, I created all of them. I even took a little... I didn't even I didn't even get one of those pens that graphic artists use to draw on their computer with. Mm-hmm. I made little stick figures of people using the mouse. So it has this very crude look, but I think an inviting
0: look. I, I agree. I think it really makes the point uh, quite clear. Uh, and you were talking about graphs, and graphs are another place where... Uh, we are often and early deceived. So, um, you uh, tell us a little bit about some of the shenanigans that people get to when they start putting things in graphs. The axes are really important,
1: right? So, by axis we mean the, the sort of vertical line that's typically on the left of the chart, and then the horizontal line underneath. And there may be these little cross hatches or tick marks on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a line, or there are bars, or something that are meant to tell you something. And don't get me wrong, graphs are probably the best way for humans to take in information as opposed to looking at a table of numbers. In a properly prepared <laughs> graph, we can take in a whole lot of information uh, visually. And, you know, if, if you've got, if you're comparing the sales figures for two different um sectors of your company, and you've got a short bar and a tall bar, mm-hmm. that, that tells you a lot in an instant, right? Or if you've got uh, a line kind of undulating a bit, but moving from the lower left to the upper right for sales figures, mm-hmm. or for um, the number of people who are supporting a candidate, you know, that tells you a story, I mean, getting back to mm-hmm. stories. But um, either because they're poorly trained or because they're trying to put one over on you, Graph makers often leave out the kind of detail that you need to figure out what's going on. They they often leave numbers out. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll just they'll they'll put the bars or the lines, no numbers. What what does that mean, right? <laughs> um, I don't want to have to take your word for it that it's increasing dramatically. What if the increase is insignificant? What what if we're looking at a million dollar company? that has a one cent increase in sales this year, but they've zoomed in on it and scaled it so that that one cent increase takes up the whole graph, right? I mean, you they, they can do that if they don't give you the numbers. Sure. Sometimes they give you the numbers, but they don't tell you what the units are.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: <laughs> are these dollars or millions of dollars? Are they units sold? Are they the number of
0: cupcakes the graph maker ate last month? <laughs> you know, I mean, it I was... could be anything. I was particularly enamored of this graph of the Bush uh, tax cut expirations. I thought that was a really powerful piece in communicating for you to communicate to us exactly how graphs can be used to deceive people. Describe this graph and how it works. So it's a little
1: hard to describe without seeing it, getting back to the point that, that you know seeing something tells a story. But this is something that Fox News ran, and <laughs> I think that they, they to their credit, they took the actual data. I mean, the, the, you, you can't dispute the data. The numbers they got are correct numbers. Mm-hmm. But what they did was they drew a picture in such a way as to give a different visual impression than the data actually tell. So if the Bush tax cuts expire in 2012, uh, they were about to expire. They, you know, Obama was president then, but they were the old Bush tax cuts. The, mm-hmm. the provisions were about to expire. So at, at that point in time... Uh, the top tax rate was thirty-five percent, and in a few months, when they expired, the top tax rate was going to go up to from thirty-five percent to about forty percent. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a change of oh, you know, five out of thirty-five, about a seventh, about fifteen percent increase. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, but the way they drew the graph, rather than showing uh, a, a full scale from zero percent to forty percent. Mm-hmm. where you'd see a bar at 35 and another bar at 40, and the difference between the 40 and the 35 would, would be about 15% of the visual space. Sure. They didn't even start the graph until 34%. So now the one bar looks towers over the other, and it looks five times as great. And, you know, if you're, if you're just looking at it, you go, wow, that's, that's, I don't want that to happen. You know, never mind the fact that the top tax rate applies only a small number of people, not the average person reading the graph. Set that aside. Uh-huh. The visual impression is of a looming disaster. Uh, and, you know, I'm, all I'm saying here is take 15 seconds. <laughs> Just look and see if somebody has distorted the graph in some way and if maybe it's, it's attempting to tell a story that's at odds with the facts.
0: And I think when we get to this storytelling idea, one of the things is to understand exactly what language the story is being told in. And that's uh, what I think your book does so well, which is to make us literate in all the details. And while we could spend the next hour discussing just the details on averages, means, and the different kinds of graphs, I think what you do is so well is to give us each a very brief, to the point, description of what these things are, how they should work, how they should normally tell the story if they're being at queuing too close to what we would call consensus reality. And then you show, give us examples of how they are torn asunder. Uh, could you talk about finding the torn asunder examples? Because you clearly had a lot of fun doing that. Well, I did. Uh,
1: um, uh, I told you I've been working on the book since 2001. Mm-hmm. I've been teaching at uh, McGill University a class on critical thinking to senior honor students. These mm-hmm. are very highly selected students. And since 2001, I asked them to, as an assignment, to take examples from the media of things that th- they were just learning in, in, the, in, the, in the course that we had together, things that didn't make sense to them or distortions. And um, they did so, and some of them continued long after they graduated to send me the oh, Professor Leviton, I saw this. Uh, so I had I had all those to draw from a big, big box of examples of from assignments. I'm grateful to them for that. Uh, and then, uh, I'm a member of the American Statistical Association. Oh, really? This is uh, a, a professional group of of professional statisticians, some of them academics, some of them work for big pharma or for uh, the investment banks, but you know, people typically people with PhDs in statistics, or like me, a PhD in an allied field, uh, and uh, people who publish in the statistical peer-reviewed journals. And I told them, you know, I'm writing this book, I'd love to get your examples. And they were very uh, supportive and, and eager to provide them, and so... You know, it was kind of crowdsourcing
0: from an interesting crowd. Have you gotten any uh, blowback from people, say, in big pharma or the big uh, financial fields for the lion weasels? <laughs> <Because> <laughs> big pharma and uh, the financial field is replete with people we might call lion weasels.
1: I have not gotten any blowback. In fact, when my last book came out, uh, The Organized Mind, mm-hmm. I have a, a small little section in there on critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out that, um, you know, in many cases, when a doctor prescribes you a drug, you're better off not taking it.
0: Mm.
1: And, and in the field guide, the book that, that's out now, I, I kind of review these arguments about why that might be so, that the, the chances of side effects might be so much greater than the chance that this is going to help you. Right. That in fact the cure is worth worse than the disease in mm-hmm. many many cases. Statins being a prime example. Oh yes. You're five times more likely to be harmed by a statin than to be helped by it, <laughs> uh, if you're just you know the average person. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm using the word average, but I mean if if you look at all people who are prescribed them, certainly if you're in a select high risk group, the odds change. But when I was talking about this book, um, I spoke about it on the floor of Parliament in in uh, London. Wow. And a representative of GlaxoSmithKline (laughs) came up and he said, you're absolutely right. He said 80% of the drugs that we make only work on 50% of the people. Wow.
0: (laughs) And he's using statistics right there to tell you a story that he's not telling uh, the public at large. Yeah. Uh, One of the things you do is talk about how uh, illustrations are used and I think that's really fun because um, Illustrations uh, uh, tend to uh, are so powerful. Again, there's that instant storytelling experience, uh, like a cartoon, I guess. And in a sense, you could call graphs, charts, uh, and statistics uh, the mathematical version of a cartoon. Well, yes,
1: we in in our field we call it. We have a kind of stuffy name for it. We call it the visual display of quantitative information.
0: Right. Well, that's Tufty's... Uh, isn't that his subtitle? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay.
1: So, but, you know, again, I think that graphs are the best way to convey most sticky numerical information, mm-hmm. or in general, visual, visuals are better. But they have to be properly done, and we all need to be armed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the next time you see a graph... Look at it, see if the axes are labeled, Right. if the units of the numbers are labeled, uh, and then um, see if the axes are labeled in a consistent way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will change the scale in the middle of the line. In I saw order that to in one
0: of those things. That was pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the other thing we have to think about, too, is that these graphs and charts and statistics, they're all based on information gathered by humans. Uh, humans who may or may not be have gathered information properly, correctly, tallied it correctly. There are so many like uh, breakpoints along the way between the reality that this information is trying to describe and the endpoint. You really have to be aware of that kind of stuff.
1: You do. So I mean, here's something practical. Um, the, the good polling organizations, well, the good journalistic outlets when they present you the results of a poll, um, they'll tell you the margin of error.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Now, what does that mean? Well, it's telling you the accuracy of the poll based on on formulas that are well-known among statisticians. Mm -hmm. If a news outlet isn't telling you the margin of error, they either don't know what it means or they don't want you to know what the margin of error is. But if I don't report the margin of error, I can say almost anything. My dog, Winifred, an adorable dachshund, by the way, Mm -hmm. is running as a write-in candidate for mayor of San Jose. And she's ahead of all the other candidates with a margin (laughs) of error of 100%. (laughs) (laughs) But if I leave that last part off, Uh I can say it. And, And people do that. The other thing you want to know about polls is... And, you know, the New York Times, CBS News, NPR, some of the better outlets will tell you this. Not always. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the, it, it's inconsistent whether or not they do this, but they'll tell you something about how the sampling was done. Mm-hmm. The whole um, bedrock on which polling rests is that everybody in the group that you're interested in talking about, in theory, has an equal likelihood of being Polled by you, of being asked by you. Right. And you have to be careful about the kinds of biases that may slip in. Back in the 1940s, if you were to poll voters by calling their landlines, those polls would skew towards the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Landlines were relatively rare. Sure. Now, landline polling skews towards older folks because people under the age of 25 typically don't have landlines, they have cell phones. Um, If I'm interested in learning uh, what candidate you're going to vote for, and I think, okay, well, I'll I'll stand outside of the the horse race track and just stop people as they go by, and I'll be very careful to get men and women and people of different ages and people of different color, but then you have to ask yourself, are people who go to the horse races
0: typical of all voters? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I I think, too, that um, one of the things that... Uh, You talk about a fascinating uh, discussion is uh, the the Gallup poll. You give us the birth of the Gallup poll, which I thought was really, really interesting to hear about.
1: So tell us about the the Gallup poll. Well, so the conventional explanation, as I mentioned, uh, for uh, polls being skewed in the 40s, if they were landline-based, is that they would skew towards the wealthy. Uh, there's some contention about that, but the additional um, step that pollsters took uh, and the Literary Digest had made this mistake um, is that they they felt that um, people who were the wealthy would be more likely to vote Republican. Mm-hmm. That tends to be true and not true. That's a whole other discussion we can have. Uh, there are many very wealthy Democrats mm-hmm. now. Uh, some of the nuance here is that Not to get down the rabbit hole, but if you're looking at individuals, there are a lot of wealthy Democrats who will vote Democratic, a lot of wealthy individuals. Uh, But if you look at states, the wealthier states tend to vote Republican. So it's- How interesting. It's very confusing. But um, what Gallup discovered in 1937 is that car and telephone owners were more likely to back Roosevelt than Alf Langdon, the Republican candidate. And the bias occurred because Roosevelt backers were far less likely to participate in the poll. And Gallup recognized this, and he was the first one to formally recognize a kind of bias, uh, response bias, we call it. Mm -hmm. Not everybody you ask is going to want to talk to you, and there may be a pattern to the people who don't want to talk to you. And so it was there that the Gallup poll was born, and it became the gold standard, as we know, until it misidentified the winner in 2012... and an investigation discovered serious flaws in their sampling procedures, ironically involving telephone owners, cell phones versus landlines.
0: Uh, You know, you talked about response bias. There's a a variety of biases that can creep into polls and graphs and statistics. Talk about selection bias. That seems to be a pretty common bias.
1: Well, so selection bias refers to the, uh, the notion that we may not be selecting a random sample, that standing in front of the horse race track. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know the average height of students at this high school. So I stop people as they leave the gym without realizing that it was basketball <laughs> practice. <Oops. laughs> yeah. Selection bias. But selection bias comes up in different ways. Um, uh, and and it can be people not, you know, the kinds of people who don't respond mm-hmm. to a poll uh, if I'm trying to figure out what the average salary is of Harvard graduates, because I work for Harvard and I want to say our graduates are the best, uh-huh. uh, it might be the case that the ones who are not making much money, or the ones who are in jail, mm-hmm. or the ones who are <laughs> you know don't have an address because they're homeless, and there are some you know mm-hmm. they're not responding to the poll. Um, That's it's it's an intersection between selection bias and response bias there. Now, how do
0: we? Um, Identify polls where bias may be a problem.
1: Well, we have to uh, look at them and use our wits. Mm-hmm. We have to. We we hope that the news outlets are giving us enough details that we can sort it out. And what what this comes down to is,
0: we all need to start thinking in terms of alternative explanations. Right. This is something that this is another theme of your book. I think that. Um, this creeps into your discussion of science, that um, there's... Is it, is it ancient aliens that left the giant uh, things on, on the hills, or was it just that it was easier to build there? Well? I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it,
1: it, it, it turns out that we don't know a whole lot for sure in mm-hmm. science. But science is built on the idea of what's the most likely explanation, mm-hmm. which is the explanation that is most consistent with the most facts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I look at conspiracy theories, for example. Now, look, I I believe there are conspiracies, certainly. I think that they're harder and harder to pull
0: off because people talk and... Sure, and it's so easy to snipe. Uh, thank you, uh, Julian Assange. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but... You know, some of
1: them are just I can't I can't say with certainty that humans didn't walk on the moon, Mm -hmm. but there are perfectly reasonable explanations and alternative explanations for some of the things the conspiracy theorists cite. Mm -hmm. So in the moon landing case, uh, they say, oh, well, it's really strange. The flag that's planted appears to be blowing in the wind, Mm -hmm. but there's no atmosphere on the moon. It wouldn't be blowing. And for that matter, the flag they planted is sticking straight out. Gravity would have caused it to to f- topple. Mm-hmm. And the third thing, <laughs> if I haven't convinced you yet, <laughs> when you listen to recordings of Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin talking to mission control or any of the people who landed on the moon, there ought to be a few second delay in the transmission because the moon is so far away and you can work out the equations. But there's not. They're having a real conversation just like you and me. Mm-hmm. What's, this sounds...
0: Sounds pretty convincing. Get out Stanley Kubrick and, <laughs> and, his, and his wife. So uh, what are the explanations for these?
1: Well, so with the flag, NASA,
0: you know, they're,
1: they're smart people working at NASA. They are really?
0: <laughs> they got to the moon, after all. I mean,
1: all. They're, they're rocket scientists, really. Yes. They're literal rocket scientists. So they knew that there wasn't going to be any atmosphere on the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they knew that the flag would just flop down. But they also knew that this was going to be a moment for a historic photo. So they arranged some uh, wires in the flag that would hold it open. and it's
0: rocket science. (laughs) It
1: It looks a little crumpled because the wires got crumpled during transport, you know, and they wanted to have a wavy flag. That's Mm -hmm. the iconic vision of the flag. So that was fine. Uh, And there was a delay if you go back to the original tapes. But Mm -hmm. when news outlets, major networks broadcasted it later after the fact, not live, of course, Uh, they realize the audience doesn't want to sit there for five seconds of silence and static in between comments. They want to hear what's being said. So they edited it out. And, you know, some of them even ran a little disclaimer. We've edited this conversation. You know, <laughs> And now the conspiracy theorists have an answer for that. They uh-huh. say, oh, well, uh, all these NASA people have been bought off by the big military industrial complex who are." trying to put what, you know, they've been paid off, and those who wouldn't get paid off died mysterious deaths. And sure, It's, it's possible. I, I can't say it's impossible. It, it just seems implausible
0: to me. Right. Now, um, it seems improbable, and probabilities get a, a good look at it in this book because you are, after all, a statistician. So talk about the way that probabilities can be expressed can express what seem to be facts but actually convey what is, uh, by any other name, a lie. Um,
1: well, so one case of that, I, I don't know if it rises to being a lie, but it's certainly misleading. Um, suppose your doctor – or you, you suppose you read about – leave the doctor out of it. A drug company says you should take this drug because it will um, – decrease by half the likelihood of you developing this condition. Mm-hmm. Now, there's side effects associated with the drug, and the drug is costly, but wouldn't you like to reduce by half this one way in which you might die? Mm-hmm. And so, well, that's a probability, and that's a number, and it seems infallible, but take a step back. What, were the, what was the probability I was going to get this thing in the first place? If it's sufficiently rare, and the probability was like 1 in 10 million, Mm -hmm. and I'm reducing the chances to 1 in 5 million, it's still far more likely that I'm going to get hit by a bus or something, you know, that I'm going to get injured in the street than that Mm -hmm. I'm going to succumb to this thing. There are other things I should be worried about and other precautions I should take first before this. So the probability gives you a a distorted
0: view of risk. Uh, This is something that I find really fascinating. The many, many, many problems with risk perception and the way, not only the way risk is perceived, but the way it's portrayed in the media, I think is, that itself is really frightening. I'm not, the things that uh, they talk about worry me less than the way that they talk about them. Um, death, you know, the are concerned, for example, about terrorist death. People who are killed by terrorists, that's a terrible tragedy. Nobody wants to argue that. But I don't see anybody declaring a war on automobile accidents, which that's 30,000 people a year pretty solidly for the past, you know, what, 50 years at least. You know, so what
1: the reason they call them terrorists is because they terrorize us. Mm-hmm. And the reason they terrify us is because we don't know when or where it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth is we don't know when or where automobile accidents are going to happen or when or where stomach cancer is going to happen. hmm those kill far more people, automobile accidents and stomach cancer, than terrorist attacks in any country. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something so um, frightening about the, the carnage uh, and it happening uh, to catch people unawares and the visuals are so disgusting and disturbing and we don't run pictures of automobile accidents, and we don't mm-hmm. run pictures of, of what a stomach looks like when it's been <laughs> infiltrated by cancer. Um, I don't know that we should, but you're right, the media play into uh, a hysteria in some cases and certainly a, um, a movement of uh, hyped concern, and it it's not as though we really can do anything about terrorism. Um, it's it's an unpopular thing to say, but um, most of what we go through at the airport is window dressing. Mm-hmm. Security theater. It's Yeah, it's security theater. And um, it's, it's not really curbing um, terrorist attacks because the terrorists that, that want to take down a plane will figure out another way. Um, I know of a couple of ways, and I'm not going to mention them on, <laughs> on the radio Uh, But, I mean, this is, you know, yeah, maybe you stop a shoe bomber now and then, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, no, it's theater and it's meant to assuage us and to give us a sense of comfort. Um, But, as you say, it's – a number of studies have been done. Paul Slovic from the University of Oregon made a a, a bit of a career out of this showing that um, our perception of risk – is heavily biased by media coverage for something. So we overstate, we overestimate the number of drowning deaths there are or mm-hmm. the number of people that get hit by lightning in a year because those are reported on in the same way that terrorist activities are. Uh, it's just a foible of the brain, uh, how we're constructed that we give more statistical weight to things that are vivid and we have to fight that. I think we all wanna be rational decision makers. We have to fight it.
0: and I think. This gets back to story. Terrorism is a very compelling story. You see it, people, enemies, heroes, uh, villains, it's all right there. Um, automobile accidents and stomach cancer, not so much. Right. Um, and it
1: feels like we can do something about terrorism, and we can, but we mm-hmm. can also do something about stomach cancer. <laughs> yeah,
0: I would think so. One of the things that crops up in, often in public discourse is the expert.
1: Often, they're
0: not experts or they're not experts at what they're talking about. Talk about the problems with expertise.
1: Well, two things to say about that. One is there are, in fact, experts Mm -hmm. on things. Um, Maybe not everybody who thinks they're an expert is one, but there are experts. You know, there are a handful of people alive who've walked on the moon. Mm -hmm. They know more about it than anyone else. (laughs) There are people who have won Nobel Prizes or Kennedy Center Honors or uh, National Book Awards, they know more about their domain than, than the average person. There's a culture uh, increasingly in the United States of distrust for experts. And Wikipedia was founded on the idea that experts shouldn't hold any more sway mm-hmm. in a Wikipedia entry than the average person. And that was a good strategy at the beginning, when Wikipedia was small and needed to grow quickly. Mm-hmm. Not such a good strategy now, because we all rely on it. And there's no way to know when you look, a, look up an article on, say, brain surgery,
0: whether it was an actual brain surgeon who
1: is the last person to edit it, or just some 12-year-old reading you know, a world book encyclopedia from 1962. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that's a problem, uh, the lack of regard and respect for expertise. And then the second problem is that a lot of people who are not experts will start opining about things outside their domain. And we need to be on guard for that. I did an interview um, earlier today. You you were here for it. And at the very end, the journalist asked me uh, about the Iowa caucuses Mm -hmm. and what I think about why they have so much sway and they get so much attention. And uh, I thought it was
0: really that was an interesting conversation over here, I have to say.
1: (laughs) And I said, you know, I rail against people who go on the radio and start talking about (laughs) things they're not trained in. I'm not going to take the bait on this one. I'm not a political scientist. I have no special insight into this.
0: I I think that that is uh, that in itself, that interview in itself is such a great demonstration of the principles of this book that. And um, the power of this book, too, is that we can, uh, having having read this, we can look at when somebody's consulted as an expert, one of the things you say is that often somebody's an expert, but they're not consulted about their field of expertise. They're, um, for example, uh, a gastroenterologist, for example, giving a picture of a patient's overall health. That seems like that's not maybe the best person, person you want to ask.
1: Right and there I, I detail in the book a case of a poor woman in Britain who was put in prison for killing her baby based on testimony epidemiological testimony by a pediatrician who had no training in epidemiology and once they got uh, um, some epidemiologists and researchers involved she was acquitted and the you know the evidence was quite clear that she was not responsible
0: I, and that too was a a misuse of statistics and probability as yeah. well i yeah. thought very telling um, how stuff can be multiplied out. You read the book very carefully. Yes. <laughs> I, I love the... We talked about this earlier, but I think that one of the most powerful aspects of these of this book are these charts you make where you have... Um, it's kind of like a tic-tac-toe, only you're adding up numbers and, and probabilities. I think that, that style of reasoning and that look at reasoning and the way you also mathematicize the language sometimes, is really helpful in extracting the emotional aspects of storytelling that get mixed in with the raw math of statistics.
1: So I introduced something called the fourfold table. I like that. Yes. Which is just a four little boxes, and you don't have to have anything more than um, 12 year, a 12-year-old's arithmetic ability to calculate probabilities in some very complicated cases. If you're given the numbers mm-hmm. and you follow these these instructions I give, you just fill in the boxes, calculate probabilities. It's visual instead of having to go through equations. Now, I, I know statisticians who still use the fourfold table, people who are very skilled mathematically, just because it's so easy. Mm-hmm.
0: And and I, I hope more people will adopt them. Um, this book also looks... Quite, takes quite a deep look into the way um, we use language to argue our point. Um, and I think that uh, this must be the year of Bayesian reasoning because I talked to Sean Carroll about his book called The Big Picture, and he has a, quite a bit in there about Bayesian reasoning, which is, underlies, I think, all of what most people consider how to argue back and forth but most people don't understand exactly how that tool is applied. So tell us a little bit about Bayes and about Bayesian reasoning. Reverend Thomas
1: Bayes was a Presbyterian minister and a statistician. And he came up with an idea that was very powerful um, that I would now say is a bedrock of the scientific method. Mm-hmm. And in simple words, it basically is that um, whatever opinion you have formed based on observation or statistics or measurement, if new information comes in, you want to update your your view.
0: And <laughs> wow, that, that's isn't it? Uh, uh, Aquinas also said that too. Uh, it, I am not a philosopher. I <laughs> yeah, I believe, I, yeah I do I not so know that that he said that uh, essentially, God made the world. We might not understand it, so we might be ought to be willing to update our information if we get it. That's why we have these brains. Interesting, Aquinas. You said. I think it was Aquinas. Could it? be. It uh, seems
1: plausible, uh, <laughs> um, but it's it's a powerful concept. So um, among other things, it helps you to appreciate that if you test positive for HIV,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and you're not in a particularly high-risk group, and you didn't go in for the test because a partner told you they had HIV. I mean, you're you're just you're just a person off the street taking the test. If you test positive for HIV, what do you suppose the probability is that you have it? You ask the average person. You even ask doctors. And I'm sorry to say, and they'll tell you, "Oh, well, you know, probably if you test positive for HIV. Probably five percent failure rate on the test. Probably 95 percent chance you have it." Mm-hmm. But that's not true.
0: That's a fascinating. So explain this.
1: HIV is relatively rare, mm-hmm. and if you work through the numbers, it turns out, depending on the test and and other factors, but it might be that you only have a one third to 40 percent chance of having it even if the test comes out positive, which is why we test you twice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and this comes down to the idea that the, if I knew nothing about you, I'd say it's very unlikely you have HIV. Mm-hmm. Now, new information comes in, a positive test, but that doesn't unseat the unlikelihood and the rarity of the disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about it a lot, but it is still relatively rare. Right. So even a positive test doesn't shift you over to cer- certainty.
0: Well, that's so interesting. and. The- all this um, HIV technology and all of the stuff we're surrounded by now is the result of science. And the greatest invention that man has ever made, which is not the iPhone or the digital recorder, it is the scientific method itself. Talk about the development of the scientific method and how that is used to argue and unargue and how it's undone as well. Well, you know, so I devote the
1: third section of the book to The Scientific Method because it's a great story. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think uh, because so much of what we experience from day to day rests on science, whether it's um, medical treatments or our diets or cars, airplanes, uh, the political process, Mm -hmm. um, building of dams. I mean, you know, science and engineering underlie all of this. Um, The Scientific Method, as I said earlier believes that we don't really know things for certain we're looking at the weight of evidence mm-hmm. we can't prove a negative I, I so just because I haven't found evidence for something doesn't mean it's untrue just because I haven't seen something doesn't mean it doesn't exist mm-hmm. but we also try I think the the most important point to me is that we try to conduct controlled experiments mm-hmm. that is we try to compare conditions in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. And Simmelweis, Semmelweis, uh, an Austrian doctor, was one of the first to apply the scientific method and come up, he was a precursor to the germ theory of disease transmission.
0: What a fascinating story that is, too.
1: So uh, he's working at a hospital, and he notices that there's a lot more women dying of childbirth in one ward than in the other, and there's a lot more infant mortality in the one ward than the other, and they can't f- uh, figure it out. And he's got different theories about it. At one point, he notices that priests are walking through the first ward on their way to uh, give last rites, and they're ringing their bells, and maybe the sight of a priest and a bell ringing struck terror into the hearts of the women in the first (laughs) ward, and it caused them to die. Uh Well, he ruled that out by having the priests take a different route. Mm -hmm. Things didn't change. And then he noticed that I mean, there are several iterations of this, but the short story is that uh, he also considered that maybe the women who end up in the first ward come from a different part of town, mm-hmm. and maybe the water they had been drinking was contaminated. Well, he rules that out. Um, and then he notices that the doctors who were performing the births in the first ward um, were the... Trainees who had come from the cadaver room, where they were doing dissections, and they'd often be in the middle of a dissection of a cadaver when you know the call would come. Oh, you know, Mrs. So and So is having birth. You better get over there. And you know, this is they they didn't wash their hands. We we didn't know about that back then. Mm-hmm. And he came up with the hypothesis that maybe they were introducing some what he called putrid material into the woman mm-hmm. from the cadaver. And his theory was. His hypothesis was that if that were true, that if they would only wash their hands, he might reduce the death rate. And, and that's, in fact, what happened.
0: And I think, too, that the way that you tell this story uh, suggests that science itself is so powerful and so well ingrown into our understanding of how we talk to one another that it can be easily misused that you know we can look at the source of the science. We need to look at where this science is coming from. And the big thing that we can all do here, mm-hmm. I want to make this practical, I want to give
1: everybody a tool right. in the book. The big thing we can do is ask a series of questions, the first of which is, was there a control group? Mm-hmm. If you read that this drug gave people extra spring in their step, and they were solving crossword puzzles like never before, and their sex life has improved, and everybody likes them now, and they're rich. Uh, Now you can ask yourself, well, okay, how was the experiment conducted? Mm -hmm. Um, Was there a control group? Did you give the drug to some people randomly selected and give a placebo, something that looked like the drug but was inert to others? If you don't have the control group, there are a whole bunch of more likely explanations Mm. than it being the drug. And of course in that case, it sounds too good to be true. Here's an example of a control group problem. It was widely reported some years ago that listening to Mozart for 20 minutes made you smarter. Oh, the Mozart babies. Right. You know, the governor of Georgia started buying CDs <laughs> for new, new mothers in Georgia with government money. Oh, Wow. <laughs> um, well, here was a study where there was no control group, mm. really. I mean, they, they had two groups of people come into the lab. One of them listened to Mozart. One of them did nothing. Mm-hmm. And then they took these tests. And the ones who had listened to Mozart did better on the test than the ones who did nothing. Now, fortunately, yes, there was a control group, music compared to nothing. But nothing may not be suitable. Mm-hmm. And dozens of follow-up studies showed that the Mozart didn't make you smarter, but doing nothing for 20 minutes kind of put you into a low state of mental arousal <laughs> so that your performance actually declined.
0: So doing nothing made you stupider. right? Yeah. That's making the Mozart people seem all that much smarter. Uh, You also discussed the infamous uh, vaccine case. I think that that's something... That's the harm that bad science can do is just astonishing. So um, Andrew Wakefield was a British physician
1: who published some years ago a link between the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and autism. It got a lot of headlines, especially in the tabloids, it plays into our Americans' distrust of um, the big ph- pharmaceutical industrial complex, and so, also government too, because right.
0: these are government. Did go to school? You had to get those.
1: Right. It also plays into the idea that, you know, autism is a disorder that must have an explanation, mm-hmm. and um, you know, what are these drugs they're making us give our kids, and. Uh, Wakefield has been thoroughly discredited. His work has been retracted. Uh, many, many studies have been done since then that show there's no link. We, you and I were talking earlier about biases, foibles. The, mm-hmm. the brain has certain um, foibles, and one of them is that having learned something early on, it's very difficult to unseat that. Mm. Even new evidence that comes in, we're not Bayesians mm-hmm. but by nature, so it's very hard for us to... Uh, change our minds about something when the. You know, so here's a case where the evidence that led us to form the conclusion is completely discredited, but many of us still cling to this view that there's a link. And you mentioned the dangers. The very real dangers were that a whole wave of parents stopped vaccinating their kids. There was an epidemic of measles as a result. Uh, and there was no change in the autism rate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So When I talk about critical thinking, I'm not talking about some esoteric skill that is going to not really benefit people. I'm talking about very real day-to-day issues.
0: While being no fan of the ex-vice president of the United States, I did really... One thing he said that I thought was true, and you come chime in on this too, is the idea of unknown unknowns. I think that this is a really powerful concept that we really need to wrap our brains around. And it's by virtue of the way it's described, it's difficult to do so.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Dick Cheney talked about the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And it was very difficult to track that with all the repetition of similar sounding words. So I tried to rephrase what he said using different words uh-huh. in the book. Um, One may disagree with his policies and his actions, but that doesn't mean that he's wrong about everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's right about this. One of the most pernicious problems in decision-making is that we don't know what we don't know. And by that, I mean we've got these islands of blindness. And in some cases, we're aware of them. Um, You asked me... if you were to ask me a question about politics, I would tell you I'm not a political science. I, I, that's a known blind spot for me. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to ask me what could go wrong with my car right now, I would say, well, you know, I would list some typical things. I, you know, the brakes might go out. Um, I might get behind the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> right. Things like that. Um, uh, the transmission could go out. There, there could be lurking in it something I'm unaware of, like a faulty airbag with a, a dangerous propellant in it, and so I may be lulled into a state of overconfidence uh, because I'm not aware of this problem, and I'm not even aware that I be aware that I should be aware of it. It's those unknown unknowns uh, that can cause the trouble, and we need to take steps to ask ourselves: Is there something I'm missing? Is there an expert I can consult? Um, the the unknown unknowns lead you to be overconfident, and overconfidence leads to accidents, whether it's the Challenger explosion uh, or uh, the Exxon Valdez, things like that.
0: In a sense, I think um, the, the task, the point of this book is to expose a whole range of unknown unknowns to most of the population and give us a field guide so we can identify those unknowns and know what to do with them. I think that's a nice summary. Yes. Thank you. i am in speaking with Daniel J. Levitin. His new book is A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Thank you. <laughs>